You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, August 17th, 2011. This is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. No star. Yes, Moon Star. That's my favorite place to get Chinese food. Good evening to all of our people who listen to the show and can speak Welsh. Welsh. Because uh, you, uh, you sounded like Dracula when you said it. Just say No star. Ah, ah, ah. That's more Count Chocula, actually. <laughs> but yeah. Count Chocula was Welsh. Well-known fact. <laughs> but do you have malaria, Evan? Thank goodness, no. Do you know how many people die from malaria each year? Three. What does that have to do with the Welsh? No Welsh people, I think. My grandmother got malaria. She told me that she used to get fevers and then cold spells, you know, like she would interval, I guess. It was really weird. She didn't know exactly what she had until years after. And she was banned from giving blood. Well, yeah, because yeah, she well, yeah, malaria will do that to you. Once you carry the parasite, that's pretty much it. 2.7 million deaths per year, according to the World Health Organization. I mean, and that's even, you know, because we, we can, you know, treat it and try to minimize it. Imagine what it was like 110 years ago. Why are we talking about malaria? I am glad you asked, Rebecca, because August 20th is World Mosquito Day. Ah, oh, I see. Okay. Which was founded it's all coming in the together. year 1897. And it marks uh, the world-changing discovery made by Sir Ronald Ross, a British doctor who was working in India. And he was the first one to make the link that female mosquitoes transmit malaria between humans. Actually, that's not quite correct. The story, of course, is always a little bit more complicated than that. The first uh, person to make a link between malaria and the mosquito was a Cuban doctor by the name of Carlos Finlay. All right, so Ross did a lot of research into the life cycle of the, uh, the malaria Plasmodium falciparum, and he definitely found it, you know, confirmed that it was in the mosquito and that, that was a vector and all that. But he uh, really fleshed it all out. But, but there were others who had... Uh, you know, suggestive evidence that the mosquitoes were involved as a vector. So he wasn't the first one to come up with the idea that mosquitoes were a vector for malaria. I'm wondering if that's kind of like how a lot of women in science were forgotten conveniently over the years. I wonder, is there like an English bias that that happened here that sort of... Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's there's always a trail, right? It very rarely does a, a researcher or a scientist come up with something completely out of the blue that no that nobody yeah. didn't contribute some ideas there were a few people involved actually uh in this trail of of suggesting that that mosquitoes were involved with malaria but it was sir ronald ross who set out to research the life cycle of the plasmodium you know which is actually a um a single celled animal it's a it's a eukaryote um a protist and he then spent years to fully fleshing out the uh, the life cycle. Cool. And he actually fell ill with uh, yep. malaria himself Ironic. in eighteen in eighteen ninety seven uh, as well. So on purpose. Um, <laughs> well, if you want that, he went to India to study malaria. I well, suppose you know there there are a lot of scientists. Purpose. There are a lot of scientists throughout history who have you know infected themselves mm-hmm. for the you know in order to conduct tests upon yeah, themselves. Yeah, like H. pylori. That was that story. That too. Mm-hmm. 
And did you come across uh, Charles Louis Alphonse Laveron? He was the first one to actually find the parasite itself. He found it in the blood of people infected with malaria in 1880. And he also won the Nobel Prize. So two Nobel Prizes were given for that research into malaria. Two? We don't think about malaria too much on our day-to-day basis here in the United States and most of you know, the Western civilization. But. That's because of the CDC. It's actually founded specifically to fight malaria in the southern United States. The CDC was? Yeah. They were, in, was... 19, in 1946, their mission at inception was to get rid of malaria, and then they, I, and they succeeded. So I thought they, it was to fight zombies. What the hell? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's their eventual mission ah. would be to, right, to research the zombie apocalypse. But, yeah, their, their original mission was to clean up the swamps in the southern U.S. that was breeding mosquitoes and, as a vector for malaria, and they, were, they, they eradicated it, essentially, from the U.S., all right, Bob, tell us, please, whether or not the Earth is getting larger, because I really want to know. And okay. Leroy is getting larger. <laughs> well, uh, I'll start with the fact that Neil Adams, I'm sure, is very upset this week, if he's even aware of this uh, development. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, this is because a new NASA study fairly definitively shows that the size of the Earth is not changing. It's getting neither smaller nor larger. And I'm sure many of you are now saying, well, no shit. But, uh, you know, such a belief was fairly common before plate tectonics became accepted. And if you're not too familiar with plate tectonics, uh, re- the history of, of it is, is fascinating and just how it, how it, at first it was so rejected and then eventually it was pretty obvious that, uh, that it was a, a viable theory. It's a really interesting read. Since then, though, uh, still some scientists and, uh, and many quacks, uh, still believe that the Earth is changing size. And, uh, and some people try to look at it from more of a, you know, try to find a scientifically plausible way in which it could happen. But a lot of these people just, uh, for some bizarre reasons, think that are, are convinced that it's getting bigger or smaller. But, um, uh, using measurements made from space and a, and a new calculation method, team leader Xiaoping Wu of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory showed that the, um, the radius of Earth is not changing in any statistically significant way. Of course, it was changing a little bit, and I'll get into more detail about that later, but in, there's no, no real significant change. Uh, now, the people who are most concerned with the shape of the Earth follow the branch of science called geodesy. Geodesy, G-E-O-D-E-S-Y. Never heard of that. Never heard of that. It's pretty, pretty cool. Now, so it's the study of the shape of the Earth? Uh, essentially, they, geodesy concerns itself with the measurement not only of Earth's shape, though, but its gra- gravitational field and how they change over time. Uh, wow, imagine being a specialist in geodesy. Now, to perform these measurements, though, in a coordinated way, think about it. That's quite an effort. You're not examining something that's very localized. You're examining the entire Earth. So the um, the global science community kind of got together. I love when they do that. And they created the International Terrestrial Reference Frame. How cool is that? Now, this reference frame, it's, it's, it's a very detailed Earth reference frame, and it's used for things like ground navigation, Tracking spacecraft in Earth orbit, global climate change, even, and also uh, the rebound of Earth's surface caused by the retreat of the massive ice sheets from the last ice age. I don't know if you guys are aware of that, but uh, obviously the the ice sheets that covered uh, a lot of the Earth were pretty damn heavy, and as they retreated, um, well, before they retreated, they were actually compressing the Earth and actually making it, uh, you know, decreasing its diameter a bit. And as it retreated, the Earth has been slowly, for over these many thousands of years, have been slowly been rebounding, and that can be uh, tested and identified. Uh, it's pretty. It seems pretty odd that it's still occurring, 
But uh, sometimes these massive processes take a really long time. Um, now, to make these kinds of measurements, you need tools. And these scientists have some really cool ones. They have preeminently they have this satellite laser ranging, which use uh, these ultra short pulses of light from satellites to ground stations, and they uh, they measure the time it takes to to reflect back and forth. And, th- and they've got millimeter level precision, so they're very very precise. They also have tools like the GPS, which everybody knows this acronym, the Global Positioning System, the Space Based Global Navigation System. That uh, what's that, that? I that I love GPS. Never heard of it. Sorry, you've heard okay. <laughs> You and two other people on a planet. Um, Gay Pride Society. Yeah, but we'll never know where those people are. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> they've, they've also got some other funky tools that I won't even go into. But no, come on. We love funky tools. Right. Uh, okay, two more. They have a uh, very long baseline interferometry, and they've got How Doppler... Long? They've got Doppler orbitography and radio positioning integrated by satellite. So they've got all these interesting ways... <laughs> you can't say that of, again. I call it, I call it D-O-R-I-S... Uh, for short, but Jay, but Jay, listen, man. There's one big problem though, and that's the accuracy of a lot of this information is contaminated in subtle ways. There's, you know, there's lots of things going on in the Earth, lots of massive movements, and you know, and there's also not enough good measurement sites. That's also a big problem. So you got to be concerned with the accuracy of all these measurements. So, especially when you want to really make a definitive, definitive measurement of the changing of the Earth over time. So enter Xiaoping Wu from JPL and his buddies. And what they did, they did something that no one had done before. They combined several things to give them the results that they were looking for. They used a new data calculation technique. And this new calculation method estimated the rate of change of Earth's radius, taking into account all these geophysical processes that might be going on to contaminate your result. But they also combined this information with a lot of these space-based tools that I mentioned above, like the satellite laser ranging. And they also combined all of this with gravity information about the Earth, like, such as data from the GRACE. Remember, we, I think we talked about GRACE a while back. The space, uh, it's a spacecraft. It's, uh, GRACE stands for Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. So they took all this information together, and they came up with, uh, on average, er- the change in Earth's radius is about 0.004 inches. That's one-tenth of one millimeter per year. So, And that's so small that it's statistically insignificant. So essentially what they're saying is that the, the, the size of the Earth is really not changing. I'll end it with a quote from Wu. He says, Our study provides an independent confirmation that the solid Earth is not getting larger at present within current measurement uncertainties. Way to go, Wu. Sorry, Neil. You said like when the ice sheets retreat, then the continents underneath them expand, but that's only happening near the poles, right? Like in the, like the far northern countries like Norway. But if you average out the whole Earth, we're, we're, you know, it balances out. Well, that's part of the problem is that when you don't have a lot of these, uh, these stations, these ground-based stations on the Earth, if you don't have a, a nice distribution of them, then you're in trouble because if you had many of them in one area, then, you, then your results would be, could be in yeah. error. Because you might be, you know, they might be in an area where there's a lot of this rebound going on, and so you've got to take that into account in a lot of these measurements as well. So yeah, you you, you got to take a lot of that into account. Bob, these I have a couple of questions. To, yeah, what took you so long? And aren't we increasing our mass because we collect space dust and debris? Yeah, but you know, you've got they've uh, they try to account for things like that because there's the surface is being reshaped all the time, you know, with weathering and uh, you know El Nino and La Nina. Uh, Make massive changes to the distribution of uh, of water and things like that. So you got to kind of you got to take all that into account and just kind of come up with a raw radius kind of outside of that stuff. You know, that's there's these little more subtle movements, if you can call them subtle. But I do wonder 
how will Neil Adams and those who believe that the earth is growing, because <laughs> that's what the, for those of you who may have forgotten, we interviewed Neil and we've, I've exchanged email debates with him about whether or not the earth is getting bigger. You know, he's holding to this kind of silly theory that the earth matters being made inside the earth and the earth is expanding outward. Uh, here we have a direct, precise measurement that shows that the earth is not expanding. How is he going to rationalize this away? Yeah. Not currently expanding. He has. He can go to conspiracy theory. He can do special pleading. He can. Yeah. Yeah, he's got lots of tools in his arsenal. He's going to have to just yeah, just flat out deny the data or yeah. say yeah, it's the, the expansion has paused just long enough for this measurement to show that it's not expanding. Well, Steve, from what you're saying, then you know maybe the Earth doesn't want us that to could know be it's it. expanding. So whenever somebody does look at it or bends a. Uh, a clever eye at what's going on. It stops. Oh, yeah. You know. Like red light, green light. Well, or, <laughs> the mice know. Yeah. I'm sure the mice are aware. So another blogger is facing the threat of, uh, of legal action for criticizing a pseudoscientist. You guys heard of this one? This time it's a, a obscure, lone Italian blogger who dared to suggest that homeopathy – you know, homeopathic remedies generally have no active ingredient and in that they don't work. What a bold claim. Can't wow. we hit another topic? I mean, I thought that one was like really kind of like almost kind of. Which one? The homeopathy bad. one? Almost. Unfortunately, no. Yeah, I want to hit. I want to branch out a little bit on these massive smackdowns. Well, Go to your local Whole Foods and tell me if the homeopathy thing has been I know, cured. I know. Well, this is a little it was, different. It's Italy. It was very encouraging, though, what's happened with the attitude towards homeopathy the past year. Um, yeah, we've made some strides. I, yeah, we've made some big strides, I think. Uh, but, yeah. So the, the, this time, though, the, the uh, homeopathy has a corporate face, which I think is interesting because you have the multinational pharmaceutical company, Bor- how, do you, how do you pronounce that? Is that Boron? Boron? How would you pronounce that? Yeah, Boron. 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 I would pronounce it Boron. Boron. It's a French company. Boron. They sent a, like, a cease and desist letter to the bloggers, their IT supporter, their host, t- ask, telling them to, to like, remove all the, the blogs that criticize their products. And So uh, as has been happening when this sort of thing happens, that, uh, that action by Boron has only succeeded in magnifying the criticisms of them and their products you know, tremendously from now from this obscure blogger to, you know, the, the science-based blogosphere. Specifically, he suggested that acylococcinum, that's Boron's, I think, their, their main product. It's a homeopathic preparation of acylococcinum for the flu, for flu-like symptoms. Acylococcinum doesn't even exist. <laughs> you know, so, so it's, because it's, it was essentially an artifact on the slides. A smudge. Yeah, like a researcher like <laughs> 60 years ago thought he was, he was looking at blood from flu victims, and they all had these little oscillating spheres in them. And it's just like, you know, the air bubbles or dust or whatever. It's contaminants on the slide. <laughs> and yeah, it's like just dirt on the slide. So, and, you know, with brownie in motion because it's really tiny. And he said, oh, there, that's in every slide of, all, of every flu patient, so this must be what's causing the flu. Then he looked at, like, other diseases and, and then eventually discovered that it's causing all disease. Or, or it's an artifact on your slide. Somehow, he came to believe that the, the highest concentration of, of acylococcinum is in duck, liver, and heart. 
So that's what the Boiron product is. It's it's a it's a, like a puree of duck heart and liver diluted to pate. I think it's called two hundred C, meaning completely out of out of existence. Actually, when you if you look at if you go to the company website and you look at uh, the description of the product, it's two hundred C K. Do you know what the K stands for? Thousand a thousand gas? No. What they do is instead of when you're doing cereal dilutions, you could take um, you know, like one percent, one percent of the solution, and then add ninety nine percent of the solvent, and that's your one to one hundred dilution. Uh, but, but instead of doing that, they just dump out the solution and then refill the same vial. And they're just assuming that about 1% is left behind, I guess, stuck to the glass or whatever. So it's just a lot easier. Oh, my God. Yeah. And that's – The echo. <laughs> yeah. It's like an echo. God. You can just dump out the God. same thing 200 times There's, and it, just fill it with, with water again. That you is know, easier. You know, at that point, why do they bother cleaning anything? Why do they have any kind of – like just fill it with water. Like don't even go through that stupid yeah. process. You know, they're not even trying anymore. You've got to go to their website, though. I mean, their website is wonderful. They explain uh, how homeopathy works. Of course, they say they call it micro doses, which is not true. It's, you know, and most of the time it's non-existent doses. And they they call their process deconcentration instead of, I guess, dilution is <laughs> too blasé or something. They're trying to make it sound science-y. Not just diluting it. We're deconcentrating. Yeah, like with purpose, <laughs> in other words. Uh, the, the blogger is Samuel Riva, who blogs at blogzero.it. Uh, he wrote two specific blogs where he's, he said that uh, the acylococcinum doesn't – that the product doesn't have any active ingredient and that it doesn't work, both of which are true uh, in my opinion. And the company, however, claimed that it's untrue and derogatory, both of homeopathy and the company. Why do you think they target this fellow Riva, Steve, as opposed to the hundreds of other people who have said this? Yeah, right. Thing? I mean, why is some, some obscure blogger in Italy? I think they're testing the waters. You know, they're just, they're just, I call it thuggery. It's just, they're just trying to, you know, silence this guy. I also found, actually, what well, this is left in the comments when I blogged about this, uh, that there's a class action lawsuit in California against Barone. Uh, for their acylococcinum product, essentially claiming that the company is committing fraud by falsely advertising th- their product as, first of all, having an ingredient, which it doesn't, and claiming that the ingredient has medical value, which it doesn't. It's just duck liver. Um, so we'll see where, that, see where that goes. I wonder if that will go anywhere. Rebecca, tell us why women are not going into sciences and uh, careers in science and engineering. Oh, I would love to, Steve. I would solve a lot of debates, I think. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I cannot. I can tell you about a study that recently came out that claimed that, and I quote from the press release, women's quest for romance conflicts with scientific pursuits study finds. And this made its way all over Twitter and Facebook and Google+, whatever your social network of choice. This study claimed that basically interest in obtaining a partner would lead women but not men to avoid the sciences, which is kind of a huge claim because there is this well-known lack of women in many disciplines that fall under the broad category of science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, which is abbreviated STEM. And people have long wondered why. 
Um, some people suggest that it's inherent, that women just can't do science and math, but that doesn't really make any sense when you notice that young girls tend to do just as well as boys in science and math when they're given the same opportunities and encouragement. But at some point, the number of women drops off dramatically in the sciences, most notably in the upper echelons of academia. So a study like this is bound to get quoted as a possible reason for that. Uh, and in the case of the study, that reason is the idea that Women don't think that their intelligence makes them sexy, so they drop it in favor of more traditional gender roles. Um, this didn't really strike me as a particularly valid claim, so I searched around and I eventually found a really good uh, deconstruction by a professor of science education at University of Alberta named Marie-Claire Shanahan. So there were, um, there were three studies. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about the first two. In study one, partic- this is directly from the press release. In study one, participants viewed images related to romantic goals. For instance, images of romantic restaurants, beach sunsets, candles, or intelligence goals, such as images of libraries, books, eyeglasses. Apparently glasses are an intelligence goal. I don't know why. Participants in study 2A overheard a conversation about a recent date that someone had gone on, uh, a romantic goal condition, or a test that someone had taken, an intelligence goal condition. In study 2B, they overheard a conversation about a romantic date, romantic goal, or about a recent visit from a friend from out of town, a friendship goal. After exposure to the romantic intelligence or friendship goal cues, participants completed questionnaires assessing their interest in STEM versus other fields and their preference for various academic majors. Results showed that women but not men exposed to cues related to romantic goals reported less positive attitudes towards STEM and less preference for majoring in math or science fields compared to other disciplines. This did not occur when they were exposed to cues associated with intelligence goals or friendship goals. Okay, so that's that's straight from the press release. Professor Shanahan found that their conclusion was actually faulty. Uh, the first study they did supported their hypothesis, kind of. Um, the researchers asked the participants to rate how interested they were in the sciences, and then they showed them the images described in the press release, and then they asked them the same question again. And they say that women who saw the romantic images lowered how interested they were in STEM. But women who saw intellectual images and all the men stayed the same between the two questions. So Shanahan points out that that's not actually damning. It could just be a terrible question. Um, How interested are you in science doesn't really say much. It doesn't talk about whether you're interested in male-dominated physics and math or more female-friendly studies like biology, and it doesn't even suggest whether they'd like to do science for a living. It could be that the photos uh, combined with the question actually just encourage women to think of stereotypes, which has been shown to impact behavior. Um, There have been a lot of tests like uh, one that shows that women perform worse on math tests when they're reminded that women aren't supposed to be good uh, at math compared to men. So Shanahan suggests that, you know, even the first study that does seem to support their hypothesis has a number of holes that could be explained by other causes. They didn't really do a good enough job sorting out the, those other possible causes. And then there's the second test, 
which involves them overhearing these statements that are either romantic or intellectual. And the press release suggests that that second test also supported the hypothesis. But Shanahan looked at the actual research and says that it doesn't. What the second study actually shows is that women who overheard romantic statements didn't change their answer as to how interested that they were in science. And that was the same for the men, which actually goes against the researchers' hypothesis. Um, what, what did happen, apparently, is that the women in the second test who overheard the intellectual statements said that they were more interested in STEM compared to, to the other groups. So it, it was kind of a, a fuzzy sort of study in the first place. Um, this, the second study did not support the conclusions as they claimed they did. But, I mean, these kinds of studies are plagued with this basic problem of how do you interpret the results? Did you control for every possible variable? And, you know, interpreting human behavior is like the least straightforward thing you could possibly imagine in, you know, in terms of a scientific study. So unless you, you know, look at it, you know, every way you could think of and control for as many variables as possible, it's hard to make any meaningful conclusions. And I think it's particularly annoying in cases like this where it's an important question to ask, you know, why aren't there more women uh, participating in these specific fields. And I think that having a, a, a less than stellar study be passed around as fact only does us a disservice. You know, it, it actually makes it more difficult yeah. to achieve these goals of, of actually reaching equality. Uh, but let's talk about some guy stuff. Jay, tell us about a spaceship going to the space station. <laughs> 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 Wow! Tell us, tell us Powered about this rocket hard blasting off into space. Stake. <laughs> All right. Well, this is pretty cool. It's um, this is a little news item about SpaceX getting ready for their next flight into space, which includes meeting up with the International Space Station for uh, something that they call a cargo test run, which I don't really see it much of a test run. They're sending a spaceship up and they're sending cargo to the International Space Station, which means... But I thought they're not delivering actual cargo this first time. That was my understanding. That's why it's yeah, test You don't have to get that technical. Would, I'm just saying they're, they're flying that ship... Up into space. No, they're going to go through all their motions, but they're not going to actually deliver cargo. Then they're going to really deliver cargo the next time around. Well, why wouldn't they just deliver cargo this time? What a, what a waste of jet fuel. Because it's, it's a test run. Listen, let me finish getting through this. And right? it's, it's, it's rocket, rocket fuel. This is rocket time. science, Steve. Okay? <laughs> so NASA gave, go ahead. NASA gave them a November 30th, 2011 launch date, which will be followed by the uh, the Dragon capsule going through space for nine days, and then it'll meet up with the International Space Station and do a real docking at the IASS. And this is really a milestone for, for NASA and the U.S. space program because it marks the start of the privatization of space, which some people are happy about, some people are sad about. I mean, I think it's pretty cool. What it makes me think of is... We're actually getting to see the very beginning of something that is definitely going to snowball into just a massive industry with, you know, hundreds of companies probably sending different ships into space for different reasons, sending people, sending 
bulk material up, bringing stuff down from outer space. You know, we're, we're probably in our lifetime going to see a lot of activity with outer space. And you it think? really does start with, with this launch, with this company, with this ship. And, you know, but this was inspired by the, the end of the shuttle program. And which, you know, still makes me kind of bummed out and sad. One of our listeners sent an email in, and I can't remember who it was, but he asked, you know, why did they decommission the space shuttles? Why didn't they just park them up at the ISS station and uh, use them as emergency capsules to get back down to Earth? And I'm sure there's a good reason. You know, they probably need a lot of maintenance. I'm sure there's a lot of good um, reasons yeah, there's, why there's they didn't do plenty, that. plenty of good reasons. What do you think, Bob? Uh, well, one, one reason I think is that it would uh, – it would take a long time to get home. There's not enough. There's not a lot of room in those Soyuz capsules, capsules to get home, so they might end up having to stay there for months just to get home from dropping off off the shuttle. And then uh, he said that we could potentially use the shuttle for for what for uh, for runs in in terms of what like picking up debris or, or rendezvousing with other satellites. Did he say that as well, Jay? Yeah, I think he he said that they could use it as an emergency shuttle back home. And that it could be done for things like leave it in outer space. Don't let it reenter the atmosphere and let it do tasks in and around. But the problem is – I think probably the biggest problem is that it's a low-Earth orbit vehicle and there's drag you know, at that, at that altitude. And it would need to constantly be firing up its engines to maintain its, its orbit. And if it docked with the space station, that would change the, the, all the kinetics of the space station. So I don't – it's – yeah, it probably would just cause more problems than it was worth just to have it sitting there yeah, it would, as a lifeboat. And part of the problem yeah. with, the whole, with the whole shuttle um, idea at this point was, is, was pure money. It's just too damn expensive. That was one key issue. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I just think keeping it up there, uh, lots of – there would be lots of extra costs, maintenance costs, fuel costs, and other things that uh, – it was so. horrifically expensive, and that leads us back to the the whole privatization of space thing. At least for you know basic things like you know servicing uh, satellites and stations and whatnot, getting into low Earth orbit. It's not really exploration. It's not really science. It is more of an industrial commercial type of activity that's going on now. It is. I think it is more appropriate to have private companies competing to do it, to do it more cheaply, more efficiently. You know, to to have a bottom line that they're looking at. I think that's a good element to have in, in spaceflight. You know, um, and NASA is there to help provide some infrastructure and 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 whatnot. So that's a good collaboration, I think, between government and and private industry. But I still personally think that you know we need to consider the value of having a Personed space exploration program, not just sending people into low Earth orbit, which we can do commercially, but uh, you know, going to Mars. I think uh, there's something to be said for that. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. Oh yeah. There it is for you. <laughs> All right. Well, Evan, <laughs> let's go on to who's that noisy? Yeah. Let's replay for everyone last week's who's that noisy as a reminder, and we'll get right to it. Here we go. Uh, now that the sun started shining on a fairly regular basis, it's a good time to uh, give a bit of thought to solar energy. It is a good time to give some thought to solar energy. Yeah, with the sun shining and everything. Yes. That was a very nice Australian accent, whoever that charming man Except was. Except it was New Zealand. Well, yes. <laughs> but putting on... Uh, you're so close to getting <laughs> hate mail. <laughs> that was a Kiwi. Very good. It, it, it is better. <laughs> of course, he's from New Zealand. John Clark... 
New Zealand-born comedian, writer, and satirist, who now resides in Australia, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was born, certainly, in New Zealand, but lived in Australia since the 1970s when that little clip was recorded. And he became known during that time for portraying a farmer called Fred Dagg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was him in the role of Fred Dagg, talking about uh, solar power, and he talks about a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, you could find so much of it. It's a good little comedy routine. I enjoyed it. Submitted by listener John Shepard from Auckland, New Zealand. So thank you, John, for sharing that with us. Who got that right first? Yeah. Anyone want to guess? Who? Is it Trinock? Or Trinock? <laughs> Trinock. Trinock. There's I've a called shock. him Trinock too many times, and he's scolded me many a time for yeah, it. Yeah, well, he deserves some you know, mispronunciations for being right all the time. I agree with that. He just has to put up right. with it. <laughs> okay, ready for this week's? Absolutely. Hit me. Lutely. All right. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. Thanks, Evan. All right. Well, we got one question this week. This one comes from Lewis Bookbinder in Palo Alto, California. And he writes, uh, he's responding to our discussion of helium last week. Helium is a noble gas element usually recovered from natural gas wells. In the U.S., the gas wells are the top fraction of oil formations. The oil is created in sandstone or other relatively porous rock covered by shale or much less porous rock. The gas percolates up to the non-porous layer where it gets trapped. Helium is trapped with the gas and is separated when the gas is extracted. The helium is produced by the decay of transuranic minerals in the rock below the oil formations. The transuranics, like uranium, thorium, and radium, decay radioactively through a mechanism which includes alpha decay where the atoms emit helium nuclei, becoming lighter elements of lower atomic number. Essentially, all the helium on Earth is produced by this method naturally. All the original helium in the cloud, which created the Earth 4.6 billion years ago, was lost in the creation. The U.S. has a virtual monopoly on helium reserves because most places do not have transuranic ores buried miles below gas and oil deposits. The depleted reserves will eventually replenish themselves in millions of years. So thanks for that extra information, Lewis. We had a few uh, a few emails. Steve, yeah, did you list uranium as a transuranic element? Well, he no, he did. He said oh. the transuranics like uranium, thorium, and radium. Well, I think ura- since transuranic means beyond uranium, doesn't shouldn't we not include uranium in that list? Um, that's a good question. I believe so. I believe so. The transuranic elements are the elements um, with atomic numbers greater than 92, which is the atomic number of yeah. uranium. So, yeah, so I don't think you can include it, but just a, a but they have But they have similar properties to there. uranium in that they are radioactive. Mm-hmm. Right. So often what happens is uh, when we're covering a topic, a question will come up, and uh, often Jay's the one doing this. And we do our best to <laughs> answer that question. Like Jay wants to know, hey, where does helium come from anyway? So, you know, we try to answer it. We, yeah, we gave sort of a quickie answer, but it is interesting. You know, there was, I, I think, though, Jay was asking, like, you know, how is it, do we have to make helium, I guess, meaning extract it chemically? But what Lewis is pointing out is that helium is one of the noble gases 
meaning that it completely fills its outer shell with electrons. So it's completely chemically inert, does not react with anything. So there is no helium blank. There's no helium oxide or whatever. There's just helium, um, which means you can't extract it from anything. It has to exist as helium gas. And therefore, you know, where does it come from? And it gets collecting as a gas uh, in pockets in the crust of the earth. Some of it does percolate to the uh, to the surface, and we actually have there is a small amount of helium in the atmosphere, uh, but but not that much, and uh, it's not cost effective to extract helium from the atmosphere. Uh, it is cost effective to extract it from you know the collections uh, in these natural gas deposits, but it, but only. Mainly in the United States, uh, in, in the Midwest of the United States, do the, do the fields have sufficient uh, percentage of helium? I think the most is around 8% or so, uh, helium by volume. Uh, it, there's some in Canada, there, I mentioned about maybe there's, there's one collection somewhere in Germany, but, but not much helium elsewhere in the world, um, at least commercially available. There are other no, other Pretty much all the noble gases can be found in the atmosphere in small quantities. Argon in, in the highest amounts, but the rest very very small, including including helium. And it's interesting that you know we're we're it is a finite resource. When we run out, it's going to all be gone. We were talking about the fact that we there are industrial and you know scientific uses for helium, but a lot of it is being used in uh, like party balloons. Yeah. yeah, a lot yeah. of it. Yeah, <laughs> Which, but you know, you think. Uh, I, I wonder if, um, let's say, co- commercial fusion energy ever becomes uh, viable, will we? Will helium be then? You know, very common. Be a byproduct of abundant. You know, hydrogen fusion. You know, power plants. I wonder if that will ever happen. You know, we'll be cranking out tons of helium just from from their power plants. I like picturing children in the future asking adults what happened to all the helium, and they say they just partied too yeah. hard. <laughs> <laughs> we represent I mean, lollipop girls. I mean, it's sad, but it's an awesome way to <laughs> destroy the planet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. You know, we think of, like there's a lot of things like that. Like in a thousand years. We we will pretty much will have used up any finite resource, non renewable resource on the earth, and there'll be this brief yeah. industrial period you know, where we burned through all of our fossil fuel and used up all of our helium and party balloons and you know all whatever else there's a finite source of. But then you you know we'll be at the we'll we'll only have things for which you know there is a steady state or we're making it or we're getting it from somewhere off the earth. Um, but that, that raises the other possibility. I mean, there's tons of helium, say, in Jupiter. Uh, it's the, so, yes. it, yeah. The the, sun. The, sun. Jupiter's not quite as hot. There's going to be an expedition <laughs> since you know I think spaceflight is turning yeah. to the private industry. It's going to be run by a group of clowns, <laughs> birthday party clowns, and approximately thirty birthday party clowns will squeeze into one very tiny <laughs> shuttle to get to Jupiter to, mine helium. to replenish yeah, our helium right. supply. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> Do you guys know what, at what temperature? Uh, it, Helium becomes a liquid at one atmosphere. I don't even. I can't. Its boiling even... point at one atmosphere is four point two Kelvin. Four point two. Yeah. It's... What's that in real temperature? 
It's damn minus. Well, uh, zero is absolute zero, so it's four point two. You know, Kelvin above absolute zero. Yeah, but I don't tell me what it four point two Kelvin is in Celsius. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, God, do I have to do everything? All right, I'm going to Google. It's okay. Wait till next week till <laughs> someone else answers that question. Minus, someone, minus some a other billion expert. degrees Celsius. Kelvin is the appropriate scale when you're talking uh, about things that are that cold. I do all my temperatures in Kelvin. Oh, it's negative 452 up, degrees Bob. Fahrenheit. <laughs> negative 452. Oh, negative 269 Does that really Celsius. help you imagine, yes. visualize how cold 200s. it is? Yes. It does? Yes, it, it does. does. It does. Yes. Thank you. All right. Well, let's go on with our interview. Joining us now is Paul Provenza. Paul, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Thank you for having me. And Paul is an actor and also currently the host and executive producer of The Green Room, um, which is currently airing on Showtime. And you're also the author of a book called Satiristas. Correct. So, Paul, um, I understand that you're a skeptic working in Hollywood. How is that working out for you? Uh, actually, it's working out great. Uh, you know, really owning uh, who I am and what I'm all about has been the greatest uh, sort of paradigm shift in my career, uh, work, uh, personal life, all that sort of stuff. I, I truly believe that when you're authentic, you're authentic. And, you know, it, it always goes better that way. It's that simple, you know. Um, I've never, it's, it's never been something that I've hidden or anything like that. It just, I, I never really put it up front as like, well, this is a really interesting avenue to pursue and to sort of own and make it kind of a, a point mm-hmm. of view, you know, and it's actually been great. And what I, what I find about being very open as an atheist, very open as a, as a skeptic, all that, uh, what I find is that it really draws people to me. I mean, I, like I, I've developed a lot of uh, following among people who are almost, almost grateful and thankful that somebody's out there, you know, talking in a way that they, they can get behind. Uh, so it's actually really been, been great in ways that I didn't even intend for it to be, which is fantastic. Now, you started doing stand-up, right? Yeah. And, uh, like, in your book, Satiristas, you interview, like, Robin Williams and George Carlin and, and Louis Black. Do you find that within the stand-up subculture that there's a lot of, of skeptics? There are a lot of skeptics among uh, stand-up comics. In fact... It really, if you think about it, what stand-up comedy, or at least a particular style, a particular uh, um, um, arena of stand-up, is uh, all critical thinking. And, you know, it's all about busting people on the bullshit. It's all about not taking things at face value. It's all about finding yeah. the other avenues in, you know, to to look at something. And so it's kind of the natural sort of um, way of, of thinking among a lot of comedians. Interestingly, though, many comedians who are, are, are really, really skeptical and really critically thinking uh, don't want to label themselves as atheists, even though by all, by all indices they clearly are, you know, which is an inter- just interesting. I don't really know what to make of it, but I, I, I talk about that a lot with, with people. Well, that's like you, you were on Mark Maron's WTF podcast, and I, I've always thought of him as a skeptic, but he's never really come out and identified as such. But now he's doing live shows from CFI's, uh, the Center for Inquiries Theater, the Steve Allen Theater. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Is he, is he a skeptic? 
Uh, he's absolutely he's absolutely a skeptic. I mean, he, Mark is somebody who doesn't take anything at face value. Uh, he's, he's very critical thinking. I mean, his work is definitely definitely speaks to people who who gravitate towards critical thinkers and skeptics. Absolutely. Uh, you know, again, it's a question of identity. People just have a problem identifying as uh, anything that can be labeled, and that's especially true among comedians who are really, uh, by nature, for the most part, of course, I'm talking in gross generalities here, but for the most part, you know, don't like labels. They're very individualistic. So you think it's more of just a personality issue, and it's not that they're just trying to appeal to a broader audience in the hopes of making a buck or something? There are some people who have a particular high profile or, you know, they're, they're conscious about not driving away certain people in their audience. So, you know, they, they, they might keep things a little more personal than, than uh, put it out there to the degree that I do because I don't care. But, um, you know, some people just, some people do have those concerns, but, but it's not really what drives, uh, you know, drives them to talk about things or not talk about things. It's just kind of like, you know, also a lot of comedians like to get pigeonholed. You know, I was, yeah. actually talking mm-hmm. with Tim, I was actually talking with Tim Minchin about this. And Tim obviously, you know, speaks for all of us in the skeptic community. In fact, his whole the whole focus of his work is about critical thinking and, and, and skepticism, um, if not outright atheism. But um, he's also very conscious of the fact that he doesn't want to be labeled as that kind of comedian. He wants to be known as a comedian and a, and a, and a musician and a comic artist. Uh, not as a particular kind of comic artist, you know, like like being labeled a prop comic. Yeah, or or like, yeah. Or, or you know, or being labeled uh, a sketch comic as opposed to a comedian or something. You know, just it's something that that you know he doesn't want to end up limiting him, uh, and he's dealing with juggling the fact that he has such a big following in Superman. It's really who he is and what he's all about. But he, he's trying to sort of make sure that he's not being labeled as that kind of thing. That, that you know, he has no problem being that. He just want to be known as only that. And so a lot yeah. of comedians have that kind of thing going on. Yeah, my sense is that there's this uh, huge undercurrent of people who are kind of sick of the, the gullibility and the you know the, the new age nonsense or you know the, the religious fanaticism and you know having somebody who just you know is out there. You know, speaking, you know, no nonsense, critical thinking type stuff. You know, skeptical themes. Suddenly, they realize, like, yeah, that's I, that's the way I feel about it too. Finally, somebody's making sense. It can really be empowering, which is one of the reasons why uh, I've been doing Satiristas live shows at like Tam and a couple other places. Is because it should be involved in any of the uh, movements or uh, issues in the community, it really should be involved because it's a great outreach because a lot of people feel the way that we do. A lot of people are skeptical or a lot of people are, if they're not outright skeptical, they're certainly not buying into, you know, the bullshit, but they don't really have any place to rally about it or it hasn't really struck them as a way of being meaningful. And comedians are out there doing that kind of thing and people can identify and relate to them without taking on labels that they may have problems with. And so it actually brings mm. people into the movement. It brings people into the, the mindset. It gets people talking about things. But because they're coming to see comedy, they're not coming to see something that's polemic. 
They're not coming to see something that's politicized. They're coming to see comedy, even though politics may be part of it, whatever. It, it, the process is one of, of we're going to do something that we enjoy and that we like to do. And boom, before you know it, you're communicating a lot of ideas that are either new to people or are empowering to people who just ne- never really you know, realized how much it meant to them. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, I, I think it's telling that oppressive governments sort of, it seems like the first, the first tactic is getting rid of the comedians, getting rid of the satirists, because humor is, is such an effective way of speaking to people and talking about subjects that they wouldn't necessarily be receptive to otherwise. So. That's true. That's true. In fact, I'm, I'm actually in the very, very early, uh, um, planning stages of a documentary that, explores just that, the comedy scenes around the world, where like in in Nigeria, um, stand-up comedy is outlawed as a subversive activity. It's, a, it's in the category of a number of things that are considered subversive activities. So there's a comedy scene there that's essentially flash mobs. They all get together in a town square and jump up on the gazebo or the staircase that, that happens to be there around the fountain, whatever, do comedy, crowd rack gathers around, and when the authorities come, everybody scatters and protects the performers. And um, that's the entire comedy scene in in Nigeria. You know, there's a lot of places in the country, in in the world, where that's the case. And it's exactly because of that. It's exactly because people are communicating ideas that even you don't have. That's the funny thing about a comedian. If you're listening to a politician or you're listening to a speaker, you know, you kind of have to be on board with everything. You know, but when you're listening to a comedian, you don't have to be on board with everything, but you get influenced and you get informed and you get motivated. through a whole different uh, a whole different entry point yeah. and uh that is yeah. frightening to a lot of people and it's frightening to a lot of power structures uh and so I'm, this documentary i'm working on, on is sort of exploring that around the world because a lot of that stuff pops up on on our radar you know, we'll read a news item about the guy in canada that got you know fined because he lashed out at a heckler at his show and uh, the Human Rights Council decided that that, that constituted hate speech, you know, or you'll read about, um, you know, the Mustache Brothers in Burma were, who were convicted of, uh, you know, for 12 and 15 years of hard labor because of yeah. the joke they did about the president. Those wow. things pop up, but nobody draws lines between them. Nobody connects those dots. And when you do connect those dots, you see exactly what you just talked about, exactly mm-hmm. about how something is frightening to power structures about people who just get up and make jokes. And do you have a title for that documentary yet? Not yet. You got one for me? <laughs> I'll, I'll think about it. That's, <laughs> I'm not that quick. <laughs> I, uh, seem- I think I'm, I'm thinking of calling it Dane Cook Live on Tour. And so you look at, <laughs> we'll get to, instead of preaching to the choir, we'll get a whole different crowd in there. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. <laughs> well, did you see Dane Cook on Louie's uh, recent episode? I just tweeted him. I just, I'm sorry, I just texted him uh, because I, it's always hard for me to say something to Dane Cook because I like to I, I don't like to be rude and I like yeah. to be nice, but I also like to tell the truth. So this was an opportunity for me to get in touch with him and say, dude, that was a masterpiece scene. Yeah. That scene was the best thing I've ever seen Dane Cook do. And actually, what a brilliant piece of writing, what, a, what, a, what an authentic performance, and what interesting moral questions... Yeah, exactly. And, and I, maybe we can tie this into the greater conversation. Um, for, for listeners who aren't aware, uh, Louis C.K.'s brilliant TV show, which you should all see. Uh, it's, it's just fantastic. It's one of the few comedies that I've ever seen on television that are completely artful from moment one. Yes. Yeah. Because I think it's entirely like it's Louis's 
piece of art. You know, he is. It is. It is. They, 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 you know, they're totally hands off. He said to them, I'll do a series if you give me the money and I deliver the show and nothing happens in between. Right. <laughs> and they agreed. Yeah. So yeah. it's got this incredibly idiosyncratic and personal depth to it. It really right. is. It's fantastic. And so Louis sat down on his show, you know, in a scripted scene uh, with Dane Cook, who has been accused of stealing a lot of comics work, particularly Louis. And, uh, you know, instead of Louis just sort of tearing into him, it was a really fantastic scene where they, they had disagreements. Well, it, was very, it was very, it was very interesting, the entry point to that scene, because Louis wanted a favor from him. Yes. He's going to have to get him tickets to Lady Gaga for his daughter's birthday, you know? So he walks in, uh, already in a deferential position, and how that plays out is just, it's phenomenal. Right. And, and I think that maybe this is a good example of how comedy can be used to sort of alleviate situations where, like, if these two guys were just having it out over Twitter or something, you know, you can imagine it getting really nasty and awful. Uh, but instead, you know, the scene set it up as like two humans who were actually having a discussion, you know? Yeah. And, and the discussion was really deep. Yeah. And um, and that's kind of, you know, I think one of the reasons why I was so moved by that scene was because that's kind of what, you know, what we try to do on every episode of The Green Room. You know, The Green Room has no agenda. There's no set list of topics. It quite literally is comedy jazz. Yeah. It's just a conversation. It goes wherever it wants to go. And um, what I love about it, and I had been doing the show live for quite some time before we brought it to Showtime, so I have a lot of experience with this. And, and what I love about it is that people actually really communicate. They're not invested in being right. They're not mm -hmm. invested in finding out each other is wrong. They just are putting thoughts out there. And you really never get to see that. Yeah, you really yeah. don't. It, it, it's, it's on television. You never have conversations where people are not afraid of the repercussions. And not just on television, I think, you know, people write into us all the time and ask, how can I broach this topic of, for instance, alternative medicine? Someone in my family is giving up cancer treatments for this alternative medicine that doesn't work. How do I talk about it? And my response is pretty much always, well, when I'm in those situations, I use humor. I don't know if you, do you have anything coming from the perspective of an actual comedian who has these conversations and facilitates these conversations? You know what? It, everybody, you know, everybody is different, and 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 it's really hard to say to another person, "Look, this is how I would approach it to be humorous." You know, because mm -hmm. it's 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 not something it's not transferable. You know, yeah. Um, which is why, um, again, what I like on the green room is that we are showing, we're not telling, we're not telling you right. what to think about anything. We're just showing you what this particular group of people thinks about this at, at this particular moment, and. Um, that's the way I think, it, it, like, like you know, at TAM, there's this, this whole, well, actually in the whole movement, the whole atheist movement, there's this whole debate about, you know, don't be a dick, you know, how, how do we communicate these ideas without alienating people and all that sort of stuff. I, my, the way I deal with all of that is I almost never bring it up myself. I always wait until somebody brings it up and then the, the door is open and I find that it's another entirely different conversation. Now, do people bring it up of their own accord? They do when you're constantly showing and not telling. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I will do 
material uh, that is driven in front of certain audiences. And I, I mean, I had experiences quite literally. It, it, one in particular, which was just so stunning in terms of its, its timing, where I finished a show and I was at by the door, and somebody walked out and spit on me. And then wow. oh. while I was still in a daze at like, really? You know, while I was still in that daze, you know, another couple came up to me and they were like, oh my God, thank you so much. I, uh, we needed to hear that so much. I, I, I've been having these arguments with my coworker and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, so, um, so you're looking around saying, where's ways. the bastard who spit on me? <laughs> I, know, I was like, you know, actually, they came up and hugged me. And I, and I was like, ooh, I don't know if I should tell them that they just got that guy spit on them. <laughs> <laughs> he actually he spit on me and a couple of people supporting me at the same time without even knowing. <laughs> but um, that's my own little personal joke there. Uh, I got to enjoy that and nobody else. But, um, uh, you know, you can never really tell how somebody is going to going to interpret or respond something, but by putting it out there, you know, constantly after shows, I will have people come up and want to talk more about it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so I feel like, like, for me, the issue of don't be a dick isn't really a question because I, I don't really care to bring it up unless if someone brings it, they know something about me and they want to, they, they want to talk about it, they're clearly open to something. Yeah. And as a, as a comedian, I mean, I, I always think of the best comedians as being provocateurs. So I feel like maybe if people aren't, if the occasional person isn't spitting on you, you're probably not being a good comedian. <laughs> well, uh, just between you and me, yeah, I agree. Uh, does <laughs> you that know, make the funny ch- thing about the, the, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, they have a very, very um, powerful critical criticism of, of stand-up comedy uh, yeah. during the Edinburgh Fringe. There are some journalists who cover comedy the way journalists cover movies or, or theater, you know, and they really know what they're talking about and they really take it seriously. The adage there is that the, the perfect response from the Edinburgh press is a one-star review and a five-star review. Mm-hmm. Anything in between is useless. If you, yeah. you get all one stars or you get all five stars, you're doing great. If you get <laughs> one stars and five stars, that's it. You're in the hole of the league. You're doing right. exactly the best way that somebody can do it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I think you, other, other people we've interviewed have brought up the whole the comedy thing. I actually think it was Matt Stone from uh, South Park. And I think even Tim Minchin we were talking about him, the fact that you can get away with a lot more if you're funny. And there, there's a relationship. You know, the more funny you are, the more you, the sort of social commentary rawness you can get away with. Exactly. And, and, and more importantly, if you say it in a way that is really enjoyable, the ideas get in there. You, you, you have, uh, I hesitate to use the term sugar-coated it because that implies something else, but, but you've just made it not this difficult, tedious, yeah. you know, confrontational right. thing. You've, right. you've almost seduced them into seeing something in a different way. What they do with that is up to themselves. But those ideas are there. And, you know, I always say this about, about comedy. It gets back to your earlier point about uh, one stars and five stars and spitting and no spitting. Um, I was talking to my uh, dear old friend, George Wallace, who's a terrific comedian. Uh, he's very accessible, and he's extraordinarily funny, and his performance is mind-blowing. I mean, he just captivates a room. He's this big, huge, six-foot-something black guy 
who just, his arms wrap around the room and everybody is just having a, a time, the time of their lives. And uh, I used to watch him all the time and I asked him once, I said, like, what is it? Like, how do you do that? I can't even comprehend how you do that. And, uh, and he said that his philosophy was, you know, life is hard, people work hard, he just wants people to forget themselves. He goes, he goes uh, this group of people will never be in the same room at the same time ever again. So this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience for everybody, and I want that experience to be a good, happy one, uh, a joyful one, and one that's kind of loving, so that everybody sort of walks out feeling elevated by these really important human values. And I said, that's great. I said, that's the difference between you and me, George. (laughs) What I really want, what makes me happier than anything else is for everybody in my audience to have an argument on the call right home. (laughs) Let's roll for that, too. (laughs) Well, Paul, it's been wonderful having you on the show. I have to say before we end that uh, your most memorable role for me was as the doctor in Northern Exposure because I just loved that series. I don't know what you feel about it. but Uh, Well, thank you. That was great fun to be a part of, even though... I am officially contractually obligated to take on the role of cancellation. Yeah, that's right. It wasn't, was your, it wasn't entirely your fault. I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a, he- a heavy burden. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very weird thing to be, to be known as the jump the shark guy uh. for one of those great television shows of all time. I'm the jump the shark right. guy. Well, it had just run its course. Uh, you know, it was, they were, they were trying to keep it going, but you know, it was time. Yeah, I, I was just an actor, you know. And when I first started, when I first started on the show, you know, the the um, the net was just you know aflame with <laughs> hatred towards me. And then I started, I actually started writing into some of these chat groups and going, "Look, if you're going to get mad at anybody, I'm just a guy who went up for a job and I got it." I go. Get mad at Rob. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. That's right. It's, it is. It's actually it is his right. fault. I mean, that was Rob Morrow's fault. <laughs> But I've got that now. I can take all those swings and arrows, no problem. It's been long enough. <laughs> well, thanks again, Paul. It's really been great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for uh, for all the support and encouragement and spreading the word about the Green Room. Our pleasure. Take thanks, care. Paul. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Except this uh, week, this week oh. Bob is taking over the science or fiction. Hmm. I thought you forgot it. No, Did how could I forget it? I didn't prepare anything, so obviously. <laughs> I know, but you forgot usually... accidentally prepared. <laughs> yeah, that would have been like, oh, crap. Take it away, Bob. We're ready. I'm ready. Okay. Each week, Steve comes up with three science news items or facts, blah, blah, blah. We all know the drill. Yeah, we heard this okay. already. Yeah, that's why, that's why I did the short version. All right, so here we go. Uh, number one, amid growing concern that using food crops to produce biodiesel fuel will raise the price of food, scientists have identified a new raw material for the fuel, alligator fat. Number two, being fat can be good for you. Study finds that obese people who are otherwise healthy live just as long as their slim counterparts and are less likely to die of cardiovascular causes. Number three, the recurrence risk of autism in younger siblings is lower than previously thought. The risk that an infant with an older sibling with autism also will develop the disorder, previously estimated at 19%, is substantially lower between 3 and 10%. 
Okay, so I rolled my my demon dice, and Steve, you're going first. What, what are the chances? What are the odds, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Gee, couldn't see that coming. Okay. Okay. All right. No, forget <laughs> it. Rebecca, you're going first. <laughs> no, no. You said Steve. I, I know, I but Steve I could change my mind. Nope. You I changed are my mind. A I am the it king. Was a cock die. You I'm in control. Bastard. <laughs> you bastard. I don't approve of that at all, and I demand that Bob never be allowed to do this again. <laughs> Until SG Fine with me, because it's annoying. Bob does get drunk with power when we make him do the science or fiction. <laughs> Come on. I, I, prefer, I, will... I prefer drunken noodles. Mm. All right. Uh, you know, okay, this is good because I have not heard any of these. Um, as for using alligator fat, yeah, I can, I can see that happening because there is a real problem with corn, I know, being used ethanol. Uh, we need a, a good replacement for ethanol, something more sustainable. So why not alligators? Alligators are assholes anyway. So we might as well kill them and use their fat to power our cars. What do we do against alligators? Have you ever met an alligator, Steve? Sure. I mean, yeah. like, met an alligator on the street. Well, not in the wild. They don't in just, a protected situation. They don't just, they don't just kill you, Steve. They grab your body and stuff it they under a it. rock underwater until you suffocate. Tenderize. They do a death roll. Yeah. They, and then they, they kill you and eat you just like any other carnivore. The details then, are irrelevant. And then they send letters to your family, <laughs> taunting them. That's I'm pretty sure I read that. That's a fact. Signed, Chompy. Um. So, uh, uh, so being fat can be good for you. <laughs> you know what, Bob? You brought this upon yourself. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Take your time. Being we'll fat can be. Good for you. This sounds an awful lot like the news item where, uh, just a few weeks ago, where we were told that genetics is the most crucial aspect of living longer. And so, um, you know, the first part of the statement makes sense. Obese people who are otherwise healthy live just as long as their slim counterparts. And then saying that they're less likely to die of cardiovascular causes, that's the only issue, I guess. But if you've already said that they're otherwise healthy besides being obese, that to me means healthy. So, okay. Then we get to autism and younger... Reoccurrence risk of autism in younger siblings is lower than previously thought. Previously estimated at 19% is actually between 3 and 10. That's... That is substantial. That is a, a large difference um i don't really know what to think of that at all so i mean these are good the other two make sense to me i don't know why you would make up something like this for this one but i'm gonna i guess you know i the other two just make sense so i'm just i'm just gonna say that one is the fiction the autism one i don't know fascinating jay (laughs) (laughs) that's right Uh... fascinating jay (laughs) <laughs> All right, so the one about using alligator fat as a raw material for biodiesel fuel. Like, first thing I think of is, like, how are we going to produce enough alligator fat? Like, are we going to actually produce it with alligators as the means, or are we going to grow that use their fat like like petri dish style and grow it in a lab? 
So I don't know. I mean, sure, you know, take some, some dense energy fat from some animal and try to reproduce it in a lab. I can buy that. But I just don't see us like having alligator farms all over the world and us killing them for fuel. All right, so then this other one about being fat. Bob's on like this fat thing tonight. Um, study finds that obese people who are otherwise healthy uh, live just as long as their slim counterparts. I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, that kind of rubs me the wrong way because I guess what, it, what this boils down to is would a fat person or an obese person have the same lifespan as a non-obese person? And I don't think they do. Also, though, you know, this is just one study. It doesn't mean that it was a good study. Moving on. And the one about autism and the siblings and the fact that if you have an autistic sibling, the next child has a large percentage chance less of being autistic. I don't know. I don't know how to think about this one. I mean, sure, that seems possible. But they're saying that they've concluded that there's less of a chance, a substantially lower chance for some reason. And I don't, why would there be a substantially lower chance? How does that make sense? So, so when I throw that into the mix and I stir it up with the fat from alligators and the fat people being as health, healthy as regular people, it's coming up. I'm going to go uh, GWR. All right. Yeah. I don't, okay. I, I, I don't, I don't recommend it in this situation because I seriously don't know, but I appreciate the vote of confidence. Okay, Jay. Somewhat intriguing. Evan. Jay brought up some good points about the alligator fat, how we're going to get all these alligators. Well, you could probably synthesize it somehow, regrow it in the lab, like Jay was saying. There must be a, a way to have figured that out. Why alligator, though, I don't know. I guess I know they, their tail is considered like a big fatty kind of piece of meat. I, so I'll think that that one is science. But the second one, Bob, uh, being fat can be good for you. Study finds that obese people who are otherwise healthy live just as long as their slim counterparts, Bob. Uh, I'm tempted to think that this one's the fiction because that goes against uh, the Bob way of life. Um, I think this one would bother you way too much if this one were true. So I'm going to say, Bob, being fat can be good for you is fiction. Okay, thank you. And who's left? Bob. I mean, Steve. Okay, uh, the alligator fat thing, yeah, it's fat. Fat is energy, it's fuel. Make biodiesel out of it, sure. I have no problem with that one at all. Uh, the two and three, you know, I'm kind of going back and forth between these two. I'm not sure which I'm going to go with. So the, the, the being fat one does contradict previous research. So that's my problem with this one. Previous studies showed that obese people do not live as long as people who are overweight exactly. or who are a normal weight or underweight. That the obese cat those four categories, the obese category has the highest mortality rate. You know, there's always contradictory studies depending on exactly how you parse the data, so it wouldn't surprise me, but that is against previous research. And number three, the recurrence risk of autism in younger siblings is lower than previously thought. So, you know, that's that's less that's about half or less than what it was previously thought. I'm not sure what data they're looking at to suddenly change the numbers. In general, the the rates of autism have been going up, not down. Um, I would think that any any measure you know would would be be any new estimates would be going in the other direction. Uh, so I got problems with two and three. It's really it's really a toss up. I think it's probably easier to for the obesity study to. Uh, 
have contradicted earlier research. Well, I guess I'll say that the autism one is the fiction. All righty then. So, Rebecca, Jay, and Steve think autism is false. Evan thinks that the uh, obese topic is false. So that means you all agree that one amid growing concerns that using food crops to produce biodiesel fuel will raise the price of food. Scientists have identified a new raw material for the fuel, alligator fat, and that one is science. Yep. So, hey. um, yeah. Yeah, you guys pretty much nailed this. Um, that what surprised, My thought was that you guys would uh, – because my first thought was that, shit, where are they going to get all this, all this alligator fat from? Um, I didn't think there'd be much available, and I didn't think of synthesizing it. I mean, if you were, if you could synthesize alligator fat, I mean, I think you'd synthesize something that would be even better than than specifically alligator fat. Um, so this was produced in the ACS journal Industrial and Engineering Chemistry Research. Rakesh, Bhai, and colleagues note that uh, most of the 700 million gallons of biodiesel produced in the United States come from soybean oil. The search for non-food sources of biodiesel already have identified a number of unlikely candidates, including spent oil from deep fryers and fast food restaurants and sewage. The scientists realized that alligator fat could join that group. So that's kind of what they were thinking of. Not that it, it would, there would be enough for everyone, but that you could join this other group of, uh, of sources of a non-food based uh, biodiesel. Um, so each year, this was surprising, each year the alligator meat industry disposes of 15 million pounds of alligator fat in landfills. That's a, a bit more than I anticipated. And surprisingly, laboratory experiments show that extracted oil from alligator fat can easily be converted into biodiesel. And it's actually more suitable for biodiesel production than, um, than from other animal fats. And gator biodiesel is similar in composition to biodiesel from soybeans, actually. And it actually, and it also met nearly all the official standards of, for high quality biodiesel. So, yay, alligator fat. Yeah. So, number two, being fat can be good for you. Study finds that obese people who are otherwise healthy live just as long as their slim counterparts and are less likely to die of cardiovascular causes. Evan, you thought this one was fiction, and in fact, it is science. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so you other losers won. But for now, number two. Wait, I don't so, think you understand the definition of the word loser or won. Yeah, but example. That. I'll look them up after we're, after we're done taping. So ah. this, this one was actually published in the Journal of Applied Physiology, Nutrition, and Metabolism. And Steve, yeah, I mean, you brought in a lot of good points, a lot of things that I thought of. Cook is the name of one of the lead researchers. His, her team looked at 6,000 obese Americans over a 16-year span, comparing their mortality risk with, uh, with that of lean individuals. They found that obese individuals who had no or only mild physical, psychological, or, or physiological impairments had a higher body weight in earlier adulthood and were happier, and they were happy with this body, with higher, higher body weight, and therefore they had attempted to lose weight less frequent, frequently during their lives, which I think is kind of key. However, these individuals were also more likely to be physically active and consume a healthy diet. So my question is, well, why the, how the hell are they obese if they've got all this great stuff going for them? I'm not sure how, uh, you know, how those two went together, but this is, this Maybe is pretty much. Maybe it's just a poor definition findings. of the word obese. I possibly uh, they really didn't. I couldn't find. I, mean, I didn't go to the. the yeah, were they using BMI and a including few. a lot of muscular people in there? Yeah, I, 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 they. I think that they were using BMI, I believe. But uh, here's a quote: Our findings challenge the idea that all obese individuals need to lose weight. 
said lead author Jennifer Cook. Um, it's possible that trying and failing to lose weight may be more detrimental, uh, that kind of makes a lot of sense, than simply staying at an elevated body weight and engaging in a healthy lifestyle. That includes, of course, physical activity and a balanced diet with plenty of fruits and vegetables. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I got on it. Um, it, it, uh, it was a little bit surprising, uh, which means that number three, uh, about the autism is, uh, is fiction. And it's actually pretty much the, yeah, the opposite of what I said. It's, it's, uh, the recurrence risk is higher than previously thought. Uh, previously estimated between three and 10% is substantially higher at approximately 19%. Uh, a large, international multi-site study led by researchers at the University of California, Davis, it found surprisingly an even more elevated risk of recurrence for, of, uh, of over 26% yeah. for male infants, which is damn high, and over 32% for infants with more than one older sibling. So if you had two older siblings, bam, 32% chance of getting autism. So, uh, so good job, guys, uh, Rebecca, yep. Jane, Steve. But not Thank you. Some good items, Bob. Blow me. Oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Jay, do you have a quote for us? Absolutely. It's a little offbeat quote sent in by a listener named Glenn Dawes. Don't be afraid to learn. Knowledge is weightless and a treasure you can always carry easily. It's pretty cool, huh? <laughs> sure. It's, uh, yeah. Guess who wrote that? Wink Martindale. Uh, I don't know. A cheap fortune cookie. <laughs> <laughs> a cheap fortune cookie. I know the, exp- the the expensive fortune cookies have yeah. so much better. Saying. I was about to say, aren't Those... all fortune cookies free? <laughs> I don't really know what that means. I'm, I'm going to start a Twitter account called Cheap Fortune Cookie. Yeah, <laughs> just start throwing out crap. That's good stuff. <laughs> okay. So, guys, we have the 24-hour show coming up. Oh, don't remind Holy me. Holy crap! <laughs> yep. We have more behind-the-scenes things happening right now than I think any other time ever in the history of the show. Like, there's so much crap going on with tons of people, yeah, you know, helping it's, us. Uh, and, it's good. It's good. We're we're, we're busy you know. in a good way. So we got Dragon Con coming up September second. Look for us there in Atlanta, Georgia, and then the SGU 24-hour show September 23rd at 8 p.m. to September 24th at 8 p.m. We have a number of excellent guests lined up who will mostly be joining us. Over uh, over Skype, uh, maybe there'll be some in studio guests and surprises. We have lots of fun stuff happening, and we can't wait for you guys to see our skeptolair. It's going to be awesome. Can we yeah, please we stop have- calling him that? <laughs> no, we have I, major major. I'm pretty sessions. sure we put a moratorium on the word skeptolair. You tried, you tried, but but Rebecca, you haven't seen it yet. When you see it, that the word skeptolair will pop into your head. That's right. Oh, I'm sure there'll be other words at the top of this. <laughs> yeah, like the fortress of skeptitude. Major set piece being built this weekend, and uh, Bob's been on a prop hunt. Yeah, and if you visit our website, you will find a new page dedicated to the 24-hour show. Just go to theskepticsguide.org slash SGU24. Uh, that's where you will be able to see the show live streaming. But in addition, there are many ways there to help support us make this a great show. So we are accepting sponsorship. You can sponsor an hour slot of the show, and we'll, we'll mention you at the top of the hour and, and in- include a message that you uh, that you want us to include. And there, there are many other ways you can support the show. You can make a donation. You can go to our store page and, and purchase some of either our swag items or downloadable content. 
Uh, we really appreciate the support from our listeners, and it helps us, uh, you know, get more done, get more quality stuff and more content out there. Well, thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Steve. All All right. Right. Good night. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice.